In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight, Psalm 107. 107. This psalm has no title, either in Hebrew or any other versions. That's why the author is unknown. But since this psalm has much in common with Psalm 105 and 106, that's why most of the commentators think it's written by David who wrote Psalm 105 and 106. These three psalms are on the same subject. Psalm 105 celebrates God's goodness in the choosing of Israel and their deliverance out of Egypt. Psalm 106 is the confession of Israel's persistent rebellion against God's purpose. So 105 speaks about God's goodness and faithfulness to Israel in spite of their rebellion. Psalm 106, the confession of the Israelites of their persistent rebellion against God. Psalm 107 is a call to thanksgiving for its restoration, the restoration of the nation of Israel. In these three psalms, the author has covered the marvelous acts of God toward his people. And also he covered the transgressions against God. Also he covered in 107 the captivities, the miseries they endured in consequence to their transgression. And finally, God's merciful kindness to them in their restoration from captivity and re-establishment in their own land. So 105, how God delivered them to the promised land, from Egypt to the promised land. 106, their transgressions against God. 107, because of their transgression and rebellion, they were delivered to captivity. Then God restored them and re-established them again in their own land. This is the literal meaning of the psalm. But this psalm also can apply to our spiritual life. It's a psalm of thanksgiving, praising God for delivering us from a variety of troubles. And that's why we can look at this psalm from two different perspectives. The historical perspective and the spiritual perspective. The historical perspective because it describes the dangers and suffering of the return from captivity and the divine power and guidance which brought the redeemed safely. Of course, David wrote this in a prophetic way about the captivity of Babylon 
because David did not live until that time. But the the spiritual aspect of this psalm, it presents a general picture of the instability of human life and the intervention of the divine providence. So these pictures which the sun contains are scenes from our real life. And these scenes are chosen to illustrate God's goodness in answering men's prayer in circumstances of trial and suffering. When we cry to God, God answers our prayer and to enforce the duty of thanksgiving in return to the Lord. Psalm 107 asserts God's providence over all in whatsoever condition and circumstance, and it encourages us in their distresses to cry to the Lord, and he will deliver us. Also, this psalm was intended for liturgical use, and as we know, the book of Psalms was divided into five books. Psalm 107 introduces actually the fifth book of the book of Psalms, from 107 to 151. This fifth book of Psalms, from 107 to 151, correspond to the book of Deuteronomy, and I will explain how and have the same message as the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is considered as the book of the law, the word of God. It is like a summary of the law that was written in the first four books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Number. Also, this fifth book of, of, book of Psalms, which starts with Psalm 107, present to us the key of the fifth book of Psalms. As we're going to read in in this Psalm, verse 20, He sent His word and He healed them. So, the rest of the Psalms from 107 to 151, we will find all the Psalms speak about the word of God. Also, there is more to Psalm 107. It concerns the Lord Jesus Christ. The verse 20, he sent his word and he healed them. Who his word? The Logos, the Son. So this verse about the incarnation. And he healed the humanity through the incarnation of the Son of God. So the Father sent his word and he healed us. So this psalm prophesy about the coming of the Messiah. And all the pictures, all the scenes, because this psalm cover different scenes, all the scenes in this psalm point to the Lord Jesus Christ in some way or another. So this psalm presents to us a living description of the incarnate Word of God, the forgiver of our sins, who gathers his church from the ends of the earth, the divine physician who heals us, the healer of both the soul and the body. This psalm is 43 verses. One to three, 
the redeemed offer thanksgiving to God. 4 to 9, deliverance, I told you several scenes. So the first scene, deliverance of those lost in the wilderness. 10 to 16, another scene, deliverance for the captives. 17 to 22, another scene, deliverance for the sick. 23 to 32, deliverance for those in dangerous seas. 33 to 38, God's work in transforming the earth. 39 to 42, God's work in transforming the afflicted. Last verse 43, wisdom and understanding. Tonight, we'll end at verse 22. So let's start from verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. So this is the preface of the psalm, in which David exhorts all who have experienced the mercies of the Lord to declare his praise and to give glory to the Lord. Why? Because he is truly good and merciful, and his mercy endures forever means his mercy never fails. So the Holy Spirit begins the fifth book of the Psalms with praise, and ends it also with praise. Because they who spiritually observe the law, the word of God, shall with the angels praise God continuously forevermore. His mercy endures forever means he is unchanging in his mercy. Because the mercy is an attribute of his very nature. He is constantly manifesting his mercy. And the word Oh, give thanks can be translated, oh, confess. And Ahyanan, Kilmit, give thanks can be translated, Ahmadu or Atariful Rab, Lanao Salah or Enelabad Rahmetu. So can be translated, confess. For according to many fathers like St. Augustine, St. John Chrysostom, we are committed to confess to the Lord. What does it mean to confess? Number one, to confess for the sake of his good work with us, especially his grace working in us. Declare the goodness of God, but not by our mouth, but by practicing goodness, which is gift from him. And confess means to confess our sins and transgression to God to be forgiven. So the two aspects of confession are integral, interpreted by St. Augustine as confess to the Lord, for he is sweet, for his mercy endures forever. And St. Augustine says, he who does not taste the sweetness of God would not be able to confess. Confess means proclaim his goodness and confess your trespasses to him. Father Onsimus of Jerusalem says, there are two kinds of confession. One, 
admitting our transgressions to giving thanks for his goodness. We are committed to present both to the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. Verse 2 Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. So specifically the psalmist invited the people of God those who are redeemed those who are redeemed by his enduring mercy to declare that they are redeemed and to declare the goodness of God their redemption is a proof of his goodness and his mercy and while the primary reference is the redemption he redeemed the release of the children of Israel from captivity and to their assembling to the holy city Jerusalem from their various places of exile but a greater redemption is the overthrow of a more dreadful enemy Satan this actually is a prophecy about how God redeemed us from the captivity of Satan it is the redemption with the precious blood of Christ from the dominion of Satan verse 3 and he gathered out of the land from east and from the west from the north and from the south so it's not only Israel because Israel were not everywhere but here he is calling every single person in the world whom God gathered to actually give thanks to God David invites the faithful who are redeemed by the blood of God God's son our Lord Jesus Christ who are redeemed from the bondage of the most powerful enemy Satan the prince of darkness because God collected us and gathered us together to be one people one church one kingdom one body not from Egypt and Babylon as he did with Israel but from the rising of the sun to its setting from the east and from the west from the north and the south from the four quarters of the world as we read in John chapter 10 verse 16 and other sheep I have which are not of this fold not of Israel them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd though all the faithful whether Jew or Gentile are especially invited here the believers but the invitation applies in general to all men whether believers or non-believers who may have been at any time or any place delivered by the Lord from any manner of trouble because God delivers even the non-godly when they cry to him redemption in the scripture frequently used for any manner of delivery of salvation not only delivery from the bondage of Satan without any price have been paid for it also applies to those who may have been delivered 
from the hand, from power of earthly enemy. Finally, this applies to those who may have been delivered from any exile and brought back to their country and reunited to their people as it happens in the wars. So the whole world, whether believers or non-believers, included in this verse, from the east, from the west, from north, from the south. But Tertullian argued that the Christian faith is the only one which can make its way and win disciples everywhere. Now, the first scene, verse 4. They wandered in the wilderness. In a desolate way, they found no city to dwell in. As I told you, each scene can be applied literally to Israel, but this can be applied spiritually to all of us who are wanderers in the wilderness of this world. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They, they found no city to dwell in. From verse 4 to 9, first example of God's loving kindness to men. And it referred to Israel's wilderness wandering in the desert. Because for 40 years they lived in the desert. Some commentators restrict the historical sense of this verse to the 40 years wandering of Israel in the desert of Sinai. But other father extend the historical sense to the suffering of the later Jews in the exile after Nebuchadnezzar victories and to the strives of their returning to their home journey. And David foretold this in a prophetic way. But the deeper meaning tells us of those us who wander in the wilderness of this world. And according to St. Augustine, those who wandered in the wilderness are waterless by the rivers of grace. If they are drifted from God, then they will be thirsty because there is no water of grace in their life. Also, they will be waterless by the rain and dew of the Holy Spirit, waterless by the tears of repentance, who have strayed far from the way, wondered, who is the way? Christ, I am the way, and have lost the track which leads them to heavenly Jerusalem. St. Jerome says, the wanderers here are the Gentiles because they lost their way in the wilderness, Gentiles are unbelievers, and found no city to dwell in. No city to dwell in, to lodge in, even after they traveled for so many miles. Spiritual travelers find no settlement, no rest, no peace, no joy or comfort except in Christ. He is our city. He is our home. But they cannot find any rest or settlement in the world. As St. Paul said, we don't have here any continuing city. Verse 5, hungry and thirsty, their soul 
fainted in them. Those who are wandered, those who are lost in the desert, can you describe their situation? Hunger and thirsty. Either the actual hunger and thirst for not having a place for them to rest or to stop at, nor any sort of food to eat, nor a spring of water to drink. That's why they are hungry and thirsty. Or spiritually, the spiritual hunger and thirst may be intended. One actually of the scary verses in Amos chapter 8 verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. Unlike the prodigal son who came to himself and is thoroughly convinced of his state and find himself starving, those who wandered spiritually find themselves starving spiritually. No provision, the hunger after Christ, who is the bread of life, and thirst after his grace, the water of life, the Holy Spirit. And hunger and thirst, what happened to them? Their soul fainted in them. Not because God was hard on them, but that in his love, he allowed them to fail. Why? That they might call to him in their need. And hearing his reply, eat of friends, drink yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. Sometimes people don't return to God unless he let them faint in their soul. That's why he let these people to faint to return back to him. So he did this, they might learn to love their helper, God. Verse 6. What happened after their soul fainted in them? Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And what happened? And he delivered them out of their distresses. So in the trouble of the wilderness, the redeemed cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And God answered, and he delivered them out of their distresses. When all human help failed them, they appealed to God, and God delivered them out of their distresses. When there was no food, God gave them the manna. When the water was bitter, God enabled Moses to make it sweet. With that mercy, the attribute of his nature, he delivered them. All what they did, they cried. They did nothing except by cried. Exactly as they cried in the land of Egypt, and God delivered them. This verse, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, repeated four times. After each scene, I told you there are different scenes. So in each scene, he explained how people actually went to the bottom and then they cried and God delivered them. Verse 13, verse 19, and verse 24. As if this were the main subject of the psalm, 
that's the main lesson. When the people of God in different circumstances or under various form of trouble call upon God, He hears them and delivers them. In their trouble, spiritually speaking, it concerns those sinners when they realize their sin by the help of the Holy Spirit who leads us to repentance. When they see themselves lost and on the wrong path and find themselves starving, then pray unto the Lord, the Lord will deliver them. Then God delivered them out of their distresses. No matter what the trouble is, God responds to our cries for help with His grace. Even when that trouble is caused by our own foolish rebellion, as it happened with the Israelites. St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, he says, God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So when we call upon God, God will deliver us. Verse 7, they were lost. Now he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. So God made a way for them, and that was a straight way to a city where they might permanently dwell. God led his redeemed to just the right place, to a city for a dwelling place. And God did not show them the way. You know, before the GPS, when somebody needs direction, we tell them the way, we give them direction. But the GPS is different because it leads you step by step. Even if you lose your way, it will tell you how to do rerouting. God's in leading us, He doesn't just show us the way, give us direction, no. He's not pointing out a distant city from afar, no. He led them forth and was himself the guide of their journey, their teacher, holding our hand and taking us step by step. And the Coptic word for lead us through out the way into your kingdom exactly means not God just giving us direction, but holding our hand, taking us step by step, lead us throughout the way, throughout the way into your kingdom. Thus, the Lord leads awakened soul to the right way of salvation, to Christ, who is the way, the truth, and life. God directs and enables us to believe in Him, to walk by faith, and to continue to walk in Him. God's way is a plain and straight way in which the redeemed shall not stumble. The evangelists and the apostles tells us in the clearest language that there is no crooked or uneven way to heaven. Because as we say, the crooked way, he will make it straight. Because if the way is not straight, it does not lead to that dwelling place 
heaven. And the dwelling place is either Christ or the church. Verse 8. Now he explained the first scene, the trouble. Then when they cried, God delivered them. Then what the reaction should be? Verse 8. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. This verse is repeated again four times. I told you there are four scenes. As in each scene they cried to the Lord and God delivered them, in each scene we will read the same verse that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. Verse 8, 15, 21, 31. It is an earnest call on those who have experienced God's mercies to be thankful. God's goodness to those returning through the wilderness should give everyone reason to thank him for his wonderful works to the children of men. So not only Israel, but God do this with all the children of men. That's why he called everyone from east, west, north, south to give thanks to God. We should be able to thank God for more than just his work in our personal life, but also for what he does for others, the children, his wonderful works to the children of men. The wonderful things he did for the deliverance of mankind should also be properly praised and acknowledged. What are these wonders? His incarnation, passion, resurrection, ascension, the work of the Holy Spirit in us, all the miracles he has done himself or by the hand of his apostles. This ought to be the theme of thanksgiving in private and of proclamation in public. For they are not meant for a single nation, but for all children of men to give thanks to God. God has prepared provisions for their needs. He gave them food and drink when they were hungry and thirsty, so that their needs are met. But not only the physical needs. In verse 9, he says, For he satisfies the longing soul. Our souls long to God. Our souls will be lost until we find our rest in God because naturally our souls long to God. Even the atheist, when they long for love, for goodness, for justice, in reality this longing is longing for God. Although they deny the existence of But when they say, we want to see justice prevails, when we see love, this longing is longing to God, in whom they don't believe. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Not only the body with bread and water, but also the soul with goodness. So the psalm spoke of those hungry and thirsty in the wilderness, but there is also longing in the soul of man. 
hunger and thirst in the soul. God's literal guidance and deliverance for his redeemed in the wilderness becomes a picture of how God delivers the lost, thirsty and hungry soul and fills it with goodness. So as he satisfied the hungry people in the wilderness, in the same way he will satisfy the hungry and longing souls. As the Lord Jesus Christ said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Also, it seems that St. Mary, in her magnificent, quoted verse 9, and fills the hungry soul with goodness, because he said, God has filled the hungry with the good things. This quote and many other scriptural quotations found in St. Mary's song, Magnificent, recorded in Luke chapter 1, show that St. Mary was a woman who knew and loved the Word of God. And the longing of an immortal soul, capable of appreciating supreme happiness, can never be content with the things of this world. When we taste the sweetness of God, this world can never ever satisfy us. Only will be satisfied by the goodness of Christ. That's the first scene. Those who wandered in the wilderness, lost in the wilderness. The second scene, deliverance from the captives. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and iron. From verse 10 to 16, show the second affliction, physical and spiritual. In the second example of divine goodness, in the liberation of the prisoners or captives, suffering in the prison of exile, in punishment for their rebellion against God. As we read in verse 11, because they rebelled against the words of God and they despised the counsel of the Mustahar. So these are afflicted differently. They are struck down by some grievous trouble, imprisonment, and spiritual sins bound to sin, who suffer perhaps more than the dissatisfied wonders. To be in prison is more painful than just you are hungry and thirsty. That's why he said, sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death, as if they were in the state of death, their condition is the shadow of it and bears some resemblance to it. When God gathered his people from east, west, north, south, they had to come to the promised land from every direction. Promised land here is the heavenly Jerusalem, the church. So some came from prisons and chains, prisons of sin and chains of bad habits. So David seems to refer to the captivity of the Jews, literally under various persecutors, like at the time of Judges, 
under Pharaoh because David did not follow a certain chronological order. And some church fathers think that these words are in time, the condition of the Gentiles before the coming of the Lord. As Isaiah said about the Gentiles, an unbeliever, those who are sitting in darkness, darkness because they are lacking the light of faith, blinded by unbelief. And he used the word sitting because the Psalms here want to point out that they had been for a long time in this condition. And according to St. Augustine, here they are afflicted by bars of iron. Iron denotes the hardness of the suffering and the difficulty of breaking the chains of all the habits of unbelief and sin. St. Augustine says, I was bound, he said this in his confessions, I was bound with no external iron, but my own iron will, my own iron will. And the psalmist understand that some were imprisoned because they had rebelled against God. They were justly afflicted and punished in that manner because they disregarded God's commandment and despised his advice. They despised the counsel of the Most High. And God allowed this to happen so they may return back to him. They resisted the commandments of God and they blasphemed and doubted and despised the wisdom and the goodness of his purposes for them. But we should not understand that the psalmist believed that everyone who is imprisoned because they despised the counsel of the Most High. Although this in general is true, but we cannot say that every prisoner is punished because he disobeyed and despised the counsel of God. St. Paul, for example, he was imprisoned and he called himself the prisoner of the Lord, but we cannot say and he suffered this because he rebelled against God. So these people, also prisoners of the Lord, like St. Paul, but in a very different sense, because they are persecuted for their faithfulness and their righteousness. Their imprisonment was difficult, with forced labor and hardship. Their pride was brought down by the captivity and its chains, so as to be unable to flee from danger or evil, and that not because of any irresistible might in their enemies, but because of our refusal to accept the Lord and to give heed to his warning. That's why people say, I cannot quit smoking, I cannot quit drinking, I cannot quit gambling. No, there is no irresistible power in these enemies, but because we don't give heed to God's warning and commandment. That's why in verse 12, therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Again, there was none to help. He brought down their heart with labor. Why? 
So that even the prison was not a place of rest, but of toil, and that the captives suffered as their fathers had done in Egypt under Pharaoh. And God allowed this so they may return to cry to him so he can deliver them. So the bondage of sa- to Satan does not involve merely incapacity to do good, but the necessity of doing evil. And that at the cost of far more labor than God asked from his servant. Satan demands more labors and toil from his followers than what God actually is asking from his children. And it is well noted that there was none to help them. None to help them. We as Christians, the Holy Spirit is our helper. God is our helper. The holy angels are our helpers. But the devil and the, his agents, after luring men into sin, leave all the labor of it to them, as well as the remorse and the punishment to come. That's why it's truly said, the wages of sin is death. When the psalmist added there was none to help them, that helped good only so long as they continued to sit and keep silence. No one helped them, and they continued as a result to sit down in darkness and to be silent. But the moment in which they knelt in prayer, a helper came. As we read in verse 13, again, that's the repetition of the same verse in the first scene. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distress. In their chains and hardships, God imprisoned people, begged him for help, and he answered. To show the extent of their obligation to him, David adds, he saved them out of their distresses. This actually was pure grace and mercy from God. Because these prisoners were under God's own discipline. But when they cried out, he mercifully answered them. Although he is the one who put them under the discipline. But once they cried, he listened to them. So the beginning of our freedom has its source in humility. When we are humble and cry to God, admit our weakness, God will deliver us. One must feel that he is a captive, captive of a bad habit, sin, that he has no strength in himself. His heart has been humbled in his labors. And he should realize that there is not satisfaction away from God. No one is able to help me except the only Heavenly Father. But they probably neglected God. But now as prisoners, they have time to pray. Who, when they were free, could not find time. But now they had time. Now they see that they have need of God's help. Though in the past they thought they could do well without the help of God. 
For this reason Christ was born and came to the world, as we read in Isaiah 42, verse 7, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. And also it was said about Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 179, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Verse 14, He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and broke their chains in pieces. He not merely loosed, but he broke with a speedy deliverance and irresistible might. When God will, the deliverance from the greatest difficulties that lie in the way will be nothing before God. Verse 15, of course, he brought them out of darkness, shadow of death. Again, this about the descent to Hades and how he took captivity captive. Verse 15, as in the first scene, all that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. It's a repetition. Seeing the gracious power of God in action should move men to give thanks to him. So the idea here is that the things just referred to should call forth expression of gratitude to God. So everyone should be grateful and giving thanks to God. David is exhorting those who are prisoners to confess to the Lord his goodness, to acknowledge that he delivered them from a state of darkness and death and of their captivity. Verse 16, For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. Now he is giving the reason why they should praise the Lord for has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. The obstacles in his way were no small ones. Bars of iron, gates of bronze. Not slight doors held the captive present, but gates of bronze and bars of iron. And spiritually the Lord has broken the most powerful spiritual bond and made men free again. Also, he has broken gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron, tells us the victory over death and hate is done by the passion and resurrection of Christ. As we say in this hymn, All You Heavenly Orders, he led hates captive and crushed the brass doors and brought back Adam to paradise with joy, gladness, and happiness. He and his sons who were in captivity to the joy once more. The third scene, which will be the last tonight in our Bible study, deliverance for the sick. Fools, because of their transgressions and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Afflicted means sick. Their soul abhorred all manner of food. They lost their appetite 
and they draw near to the gates of death. Because of their sickness and illness, they draw near to the gates of death. So this is a third example of divine goodness. In the restoration of those who have been punished with sickness for their sins. When God gathered his people again, from verse 2 and 3, they had to come to the promised land from every direction. But some came from sickness and affliction, and God rescued and redeemed them. Even though their trouble could be traced to their foolishness, transgression, and iniquity. Definitely not every sickness is punishment from God, like the man who was born blind. But definitely, sometimes our sins lead to sickness. That's why he will speak about those who are fools, foolishness. As when God afflicted the Israelites with great plague through the fiery serpents, and many of the people of Israel died, and when they cried out to God, they were delivered. Who are the fools? Wicked people considered as fools because they are transgressors. The word fools signifies immoral persons who have no wisdom, no understanding of divine and spiritual things. It's not mere weakness or ignorance or lack of knowledge which leads to downfall. But foolishness here in this verse means the opposite of wisdom. Wisdom that leads to life, as we read in Proverbs 1, verse 7. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fool and sin are regarded as two aspects of the same moral condition in the scripture. And sickness is spoken of as an ordinary punishment for them. So the psalmist described those who were very sick and near death. The disease must have been very severe when they used the food, lost their appetite, food that necessary to support their life. So that death must have in consequence been actually at their doors. They drew near to gates of death. Food and pleasure are no longer relevant for them because their affliction is a sickness to death. And by spiritual resemblance, when a sick soul has no appetite for the milk or meat of the word of God, it shows that spiritual death is near. When we lose our appetite to the word of God, this means spiritual death is at hand. A time of affliction is a time of trouble and a proper season for prayer. That's why, again, it's repeated for the third time. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distresses. This verse again is repeated as verse 6 before and verse 13. Even when God's people are in trouble because of their own wrongdoing, God answers them when they cry out to him. Their prayers brought them to the throne of grace when they humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God 
to seek relief from him. For example, Hezekiah, in his affliction, prayed to the Lord and God delivered him. But Asa, we read about him in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 12, became diseased in his feet and his malady was severe. Yet, in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physician. Of course, nothing wrong to seek the physician, but physicians are tools in the hand of God. So you need to seek the Lord before seeking the physician. Then this beautiful verse 20. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. They were healed by the power of God's word, reminding us of the many times Jesus healed people simply by speaking a word. Say a word and my servant will be healed. He sent his word and healed them. David explained how they were healed. It is by the will and the command of God alone. David speaks figuratively when he says he sent his word. As if the word a messenger or ambassador on the occasion. His word can mean a human messenger. Like the word is sent to Hezekiah in his sickness. Or the word can be a thought suggested to the mind, either directly by God or by an angel, like what happened to Job in chapter 33. Also, he sent his word. It's about the incarnation, the mission of the word incarnate, the actual word of God. Because the Son sent by the Father, through whom many were healed of their physical diseases and without whom nobody could be healed of their spiritual diseases. He is the true physician of our soul. These sick and afflicted ones were delivered from their destruction by the powerful word of God. God, by his sole word and command, can heal and cure all manner of diseases. He delivered them from their destructions. Verse 21, once again, he said the theme of the psalm to be grateful. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his good word, for his goodness, and for his wonderful works to the children of men. So once again, David encouraged all men to give thanks to God for his deliverance. Seeing the gracious power of God in restoring bodily health, which is of divine goodness, and in healing the diseases of the soul, which is the forgiveness of sin, according to the multitude of his mercies, men should be moved to give thanks. Let them sacrifice, verse 22, let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. Those who have been sick and have been restored to health should offer the sacrifices of thanksgiving. They ought to praise the Lord. And the word sacrifice here is used in a large sense to signify worship and praise. Not just saying thank you, but to worship the Lord and praise Him. 
this conclude our Bible study tonight. Glory be to God forever and ever.